A few weeks ago, after an especially awesome event here at First Parish in Cambridge, a young woman asked her girlfriend, so what do you think? Are you ready to become a Unitarian Universalist? And her girlfriend answered, I'm not sure I'm good enough to be a Unitarian Universalist. The girlfriend grew up lower middle class, the first in her family to attend college. Helping out in our religious education program, she couldn't help notice how privileged many of our kids are, some attending private school. And then there are so many causes our congregation supports, so many announcements about how to get more involved. It's overwhelming. How can she care about so many things? Raised in North Carolina, her mom, a Southern Baptist, she always thought religion was all about sin. But here, when she walks in our door, everyone assumes absolutely she's a good person, which is wonderful but confusing. So she wonders, am I good enough? to be a Unitarian Universalist? It's a painful question for her and for us. Could our exhortations to justice-making, our calls to community service, our pleas for volunteers be inspiring feelings not of possibility but of inadequacy? We pride ourselves on our historic relationship with Harvard University and all the advanced degrees earned by members of our congregation, not to mention our clergy. <laughs> Although our church includes a range of members from people on public assistance to people with trust funds, many of our Unitarian ancestors were prosperous Brahmins, rebelling against the Calvinist orthodoxy of predestination, they proclaimed salvation by character, which was liberating, but also intimidating. Just how good must my character be to deserve salvation? As Unitarian Universalists, we also trace our ancestry to the radically inclusive doctrine of universal salvation, which insisted that a loving God would never, could never condemn any person to eternal torment. There is no hell, proclaimed these heretic universalists, only heaven. All are saved. All are loved. All are good enough. Universalists sought to create a classless moral community united in God. In 1840, 
itinerant universalist preacher George Rogers described a congregation gathered in a schoolhouse with provisions spread out on a common table to which, without respect to rank or condition or opinions, all that would come might come and partake freely without money and without price. All were on a parity. All distinctions of caste were lost sight of. All individualities were merged in the mass. And as one family, all rejoiced together in one common and glorious hope. And for those former Catholics and Episcopalians amongst us, perhaps I should emphasize that mass in this context just meant the group. All good enough. Universalists came from all walks of life, rich and poor and in between. While some were highly educated, many were unlettered. Indeed, the great universalist leader and preacher, Hosea Ballou, opposed the establishment of Tufts College because he feared too much education might interfere with divine inspiration. That would be an interesting conversation to have with the students amongst us this morning. In the 1830s, universalism inspired working class activism in Philadelphia. Universalist Eunice Connolly a white New Englander born in 1837 struggled with poverty until her marriage to an African-American sea captain. God does not require, she said, that our petition be couched in elegant and beautiful language. All good enough. But the fear of not being good enough is not just about class or education, is it? Whatever our upbringing or schooling, how many of us doubt our goodness? I do, all the time. One morning last month, I was out of sorts because Julie asked me to tidy the downstairs before I left for work, which was a totally fair request, but I resented it because I knew if I cleaned up, I wouldn't have time to meditate. But I cleaned up, and as I rushed out the door to Alewife Station, I thought, okay, if I can't meditate, at least I can do a little spiritual reading on the train. I just started a book called Say Yes to Grace by Kirk Byron Jones, a former minister of Beacon Light Baptist Church in New Orleans and Calvary Baptist Church in Chester, Pennsylvania, now an adjunct professor at Andover Newton Theological School. But when I got to the station, I decided I really should proofread and format my last Sunday's sermon for posting online. 
So I turned on my computer, continued working when I boarded the train, and finally finished, finally finished just as we pulled into Porter Square. I had exactly one stop remaining for my spiritual reading. I opened Say Yes to Grace and read these words. Too much of our existence is weighted down by our not accepting ourselves. To not accept who we are is to place a great burden on our backs. It is, be, it is to be constantly weighed down by the notion that we are not good enough as we are. And any worth that we have any right to must be earned and re-earned by constant struggle and toil. Living in non-self-acceptance carries the additional burdensome baggage of suspecting that others don't accept us. This often triggers drivenness, feeling we have to do and overdo to make it in life, to get people to like us, and to maintain responsibly pulling our rightful weight in the world. The tyranny of it all transforms life into a constant push-and-pull existence which causes us to feel chronically tired and worn. We live under continual duress, uneasy, unsure, and unsteady in our inner and outer worlds. We do not know peace. And I thought, well, that's it, isn't it? That's the way I've lived my entire life. And I've known it. I've known it almost my entire life. When I was 13 years old at summer camp, I remember talking to a counselor about something, and he interrupted me and said, approval, approval. What? I said. Approval, he repeated. You're asking for approval, I'm giving you approval. My parents loved me fiercely. But from my earliest memory, I felt I had to earn their love, to earn my right to exist by doing, accomplishing, being somehow more, better, different than I was. I became addicted to achievement excelling in academics and sports by working hard at the expense of rest and friendships, but never at peace, always doubting myself, even as I presented to the world a facade of competence and confidence and even arrogance, all the while so sensitive to any criticism that only confirmed my own self-criticism and exposed me 
as the fraud I knew I was. And through all the emotional healing and spiritual practice of my adult life, the feeling of inadequacy has endured, mitigated and reduced, but still persistent. And so exhausting. That's why I've been so irritable that morning caught between self-care and my need for Julie's approval. That's why I'd worked on my sermon on the train instead of reading my book. And all this I recognized in an instant as the train pulled in to Harvard Square. Dr. Jones advises living from acceptance, not for acceptance. Living from acceptance, he writes, is living with the firm belief that you are eternally embraced in the most exquisite love of all, God's love. Such glorious internal acceptance is not based on what you do, but who you are. He tells of emerging from sleep one morning and hearing a voice saying, Good morning, child of God. Now, he says, those words are often his first thought of the day. Good morning, child of God. The self-loathing that ensnares the ego is well known in many spiritual traditions. Buddhist teacher Tara Brach calls it the trance of unworthiness. The belief that we are deficient and unworthy, she writes, makes it difficult to trust that we are truly loved. Convinced that we are not good enough, we can never relax. To awaken from the trance, she counsels radical acceptance, which consists of seeing clearly what is happening in the present moment. and then embracing it with compassion. The late Henry Nouwen, a Catholic priest who taught at Harvard Divinity School, called it the trap of self-rejection. The greatest trap in our life, he insisted, is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Maybe you think that you are more tempted by arrogance than self-rejection, Nouwen said, but isn't arrogance, in fact, the other side of self-rejection? Isn't arrogance putting yourself on a pedestal to avoid being seen as you see yourself? Isn't arrogance, in the final analysis, just another way of dealing with feelings of worthlessness? Nowen believed with all his heart that all of us are beloved of God. Fred, he said, now is that incredible? He's writing to his friend, the journalist Fred Brotman, but of course he's talking to me. (laughs) Fred. 
All I want to say to you is, you are the beloved. And I hope that you can hear these words as spoken to you with all the tenderness and force that love can hold. My only desire is to let these words reverberate in every corner of your being. You are the beloved. Being the beloved, now and wrote, expresses the core truth of our existence. From the moment we claim the truth of being the beloved, we are faced with the call to become who we are. I don't think we have to believe in God to claim this truth, only to believe we are worthy of love and that we are held, cradled in love's infinite embrace. Reading saying yes to grace, I began to feel maybe for the first time, the actual possibility that I could claim this truth, not just sometimes in meditation or prayer or counseling, but most of the time. Why not all the time? I just have to remember who I really am. Just remember. And so, like Dr. Jones, I've begun to say to myself upon waking each day, good morning, child of God. And during the day when I forget who I am, as I always do, and maybe always will, I say with Henry Nouwen, I am beloved. I am beloved of God. A couple of weeks ago, counseling with a longtime friend, I imagined what it might be like, really, to let go, to relax completely, to surrender completely. I let my body go absolutely limp, releasing all physical energy. My jaw went slack as if, as if I had died. My body a useless, desiccated shell, abandoned by my spirit, which was now falling. Falling, falling through infinite space. Until at last it slowed 
and stopped. Weightless. Invisible. Insubstantial. In deep space, among countless stars, there was nothing to do. Except B. I was free. And so I decided to fly. It was good. I'm going back there. I have gone back there. And I'll be back again. Recently, I heard a respected Unitarian Universalist minister admonish clergy serving our congregations. You can welcome people as they are, or you can say they need transformation. You can't have it both ways. This minister suggested that modest, incremental, little t transformation is aspiration enough. While I always appreciate a healthy caution against grandiosity, I reject the dichotomy of acceptance and transformation. We do not have to choose. We can have both. We must have both. Both unconditional love of every person and an invitation, an incitement to revolutionary change. Indeed, to know we are unconditionally loved is revolutionary change. We must say to one another, not I love you if and only if, but I love you and. We are perfect exactly as we are and we can be better. Not because we ought to be, but because we want to be. Because we are called to be. Unitarian Universalist minister Aaron McEmrys puts it this way. We all need to believe that our lives can change. Not because we are flawed, but because we are not done becoming yet. Transformation is not becoming someone else. Transformation is becoming who we are, who each of us truly is, creative, curious, compassionate, powerful, 
I believe we yearn for this transformation. All of us yearn for transformation even when we don't know it. Kay Lynn Northcutt is a concert pianist, an award-winning author, and a minister in the Christian church, Disciples of Christ. When she was a little girl, she and her sister walked a long way together to the nearest elementary school. And every day, without fail, as the two girls left the house, their mother would call after them, go find your greatness, which at the time seemed just weird, <laughs> but which Dr. Northcutt has since come to appreciate. Because in those four words, every morning, her mother proclaimed both love and challenge. All are saved. All are loved. All are good enough. Go find your greatness. <laughs>